Good morning. It is uh, good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to preach once again. Uh, like he said, I am a small group leader. You've probably seen me up here on the worship team. I am not on staff, which means I have a day job. And uh, by day, I am a financial planner. I'm in the finance industry. And I don't know if it's because of that or just because this was something that the, the Lord laid on my heart, but I felt called to preach on a passage relating to money and worldly wealth and riches. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about money. In fact, there's somewhere north of around 2,300 verses in the word that have to do with riches or possessions or money, uh, things along those lines. So it's important for us to continually remind ourselves of the attitude that we should have towards money as believers. Now, one of my favorite quotes on money, I, I actually don't know who said it first. I've seen it attributed to a couple of different people, but it's money is a magnifying glass. Basically, the more you have, the more your character as a person is revealed. And Jesus said something very similar. In Luke 12, verse 34, he said, I have found, um, or, or excuse me, he said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I have found that to be very true. Working in finance, I've seen a lot of situations with money and worldly possessions. I, I won't say that I've seen everything, but I've seen a lot. And uh, I thought we would open with a story, uh, something that happened uh, a while back. And I'll just say up front, names have been changed to protect the innocent. But I, I was working, um, there was a guy named Mike, and a very wealthy individual, had, had done very well in his life and in business, had started a couple companies, sold them. And a big portion of his wealth was in real estate. And he, he had a, uh, in particular, a very large beach house in the Outer Banks down in North Carolina. And he traveled the world, he, he went all over the place, so he did not live in North Carolina, he did not manage the, the property himself, he hired someone to do that for him. And we will call this gentleman Sean. Now, Sean was kind of the boots on the ground. He handled the bookings and the maintenance and the upkeep, and they did you know, the whole short-term rental thing, and the Airbnb thing, and, and Sean was kind of the, the physical presence there to make sure that they kept this thing running, kept this thing going. And long story short, Mike came to find out that Sean had not been entirely honest in the way that he was handling the bookings and the maintenance of the beach house. Bottom line, he wasn't doing a great job. Uh, there were some numbers that didn't exactly add up. He had actually stayed there uh, when he had reported that other people were staying there. It was not a good situation. So Mike called Sean into his office, and the way he put it is he called him in and he called him out. And he said, you know, I've found what you're doing, confronted him with the numbers, and uh, fired him on the spot. Said, you're, you're done. So Mike took over management of the beach house from that point on. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that he found out Sean's final kind of dagger in the back on his way out the door. He found out, not entirely sure of the timeline, but probably as he left the office, maybe even in his car in the parking lot, Sean called up the last two families who had stayed at the beach house and just gave them massive discounts on what they owed for their stays. So the first family, it was something like $12,000. And he said, you can have it for eight. 
and the other family was, I think it was around 7,000, he said, you only owe four. And basically, he'd made good with these other families as he was on his way out the door. A little bit about Sean, had a bit of a checkered past. It was going to be difficult for him to find employment elsewhere. So he kind of set himself up for success with these other wealthy families and hoped that they would employ him as he was on his way out the door. And Mike had, had two takeaways, two comments from what happened. The first was, remember, Mike had also been very successful in business. Mike said, that was pretty smart. And the second thing that he said was, I wish that Sean would have been that smart in handling my affairs as he was in securing his own future. So my question for you this morning is this. Does this story sound familiar? I hope that it does. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We are going to be in verses 1 through 15. Now I'll read this aloud. This is Jesus talking. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we read through this passage, I pray that you would give us a new perspective on how, what our relationship should be to worldly wealth, to possessions, to our money, that you would give us a heavenly perspective on how we are to think about what you've entrusted us with here on this earth. Pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And all this in your name, amen. All right, so my story was not real. I have uh, contextualized this parable, and I did that intentionally. Um, just like my characters are fictional, so are these characters that Jesus brings up in, in this parable as well. Now, I want to say up front, this is universally considered one of the most difficult parables that Jesus preached, because it seems like he's commending this dishonest guy. And 
even if you don't know a whole lot about Jesus, it's probably a safe thing to say, well, it doesn't seem like Jesus is the type of person who would give the thumbs up to lying and stealing and dishonesty, right? So the next question then, well, what is the point that he's trying to make? And that's why I gave my little version here at the end. He's using a sinful situation to highlight a biblical concept, specifically that line at the end. I wish that he would have been as savvy in handling my affairs as he was in setting himself up for his next opportunity. And that takes us to our big idea this morning, which is this. True riches are found in God's eternal kingdom. True riches are found in God's eternal kingdom. Now, uh, structure of the message this morning, we're, we're going to look at a number of observations, some takeaways from the text, and then I want to make sure we spend a good amount of time on application. What does this actually mean for us today? So that'll lead us into our first observation from the text, and I, I'll just say up front, this, is, this one is the toughest one uh, to get your head around. Uh, this comes from verse 8. My observation is that those who believe have a different perspective. The verse says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light. I studied this passage a lot. I prayed through this passage a lot. There's a lot of different interpretations of what Jesus actually means when he's saying here. So I've got three, and I think that Jesus can probably do that. He, there's probably multiple meanings in one statement. But I've got three layers of meaning, if you will, to what Jesus is saying here, people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with, the people, with their own kind than are the people of light. So first, Jesus is holding up the dishonest steward and commending him not for his dishonesty, not for his mismanagement, but for his shrewdness, for his savvy. He basically says here, um, when it comes to your attitude on how to secure your future as believers, be more like him. Uh, another way to say it, unbelievers, or those who do not believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he came and died for your sins, and rose again, and paid for the sins of all my, mankind, past, present, and future, unbelievers are better at gaining temporal wealth for themselves than believers are at gaining eternal wealth for themselves. And think about that for a second. What does that say about us as Christians? The second thing is it can be tempting to envy those who are successful in this age. You look at investors or people who are just very wealthy or who have done very well in real estate or just have a bigger house or more land or a more beautiful family. I don't know, whatever it is, it can be tempting, tempting to be envious of that. But Jesus says, no, you should have a different perspective. And I left that pretty open-ended, a different perspective on what? Everything, <laughs> everything. Money, wealth, riches, possessions, relationships, you have a different perspective on everything. And then the, the third layer of meaning here is it should be this way. You should have a different perspective. As a believer in Jesus Christ, your perspective on what you do with your money should be different from what unbelievers do with their money. Now, some of your Bibles, uh, the translation I'm using here says the people of this world. Uh, some of your Bibles say the sons of this age. I actually really like that version because it, it calls attention to me the like generational differences. So if, if you talk to someone older than yourself and you tell me what life was like in the 40s or the 30s or the 20s, I, I don't know. You can hear what it was like 
But the further back you go, the more difficult it is going to be to really understand what it was like to live in a previous age, in a previous generation. And in a certain, to a certain extent, that's how it is for us as believers, as Christians. The longer that you are a Christian, the more sanctified you become, it becomes more and more difficult to look back at the life you used to live and identify with that worldview. There's a couple of different words used for wisdom in the Greek language, and I've uh, called out two here. Uh, the first one, which is the one that you usually see, is sophia, which means to act wisely. That's the, the typical definition of wisdom that uh, I'm, I'm using even right now. But that's not the word that is used here. So in the verse, it says the people of this world are more shrewd. Though we have two English words, more shrewd. The Greek is phronimos which means prudently wise. Uh, you might think wise when it comes to acting in your interests, maybe wise in a business sense would be a good way to put it. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, be more phronimos in how you set yourself up for eternal riches and wealth, not Sophia. So we, as Christians, should be more phronimos in how we handle our wealth than unbelievers are and how they handle theirs because we have a different perspective. Now, that's not to say that God does not give success to Christians. Many of you have done very well. Uh, you, you've accumulated a large amount of wealth, be that actual physical money or uh, other more hard assets. Um, it doesn't matter, though. Your perspective should be different, whatever God has entrusted you with. Because... Even the most vast sums of money will pass away. Possessions will eventually burn, and you will one day die. Which leads us to our second observation. It comes from verse 9. The world and everything in it are temporary. We're going to talk more about the first half of this verse. I've got it up there on the screen later when we get into application. I want to focus on, on those few words that I've underlined so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. If we think about our big idea, if it's true that true riches are found in God's eternal kingdom, the other side of that implication are that this world and the riches in this world are temporary. And that has a pretty, I mean, that, that's a pretty massive implication if that's true. It harkens back to something Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, where he talks about the guy who, accumulated so much wealth that all that he could do was build bigger barns to hold all of it. And one day God comes to him and says, uh, tonight your life is required of you. And basically says, you, you fool. And the message is, you can be rich in this life, but if you're not rich towards God, you are a fool. In verse 33, this is Luke 12, 33, he says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide for yourselves that which will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near, and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Lord, through studying his word, has changed my perspective on this passage. For so, and, and just in general, the, the idea of money and how we handle it. For so long, I read the word, and I read passages like these, and I thought, okay, we're called to give up what we have. If I'm being honest, that's a little hard to wrap my head around, especially as Americans. We like stuff. We like ownership. We like freedom, right? But that's not where the verse ends. Don't miss the second half of the verse. 
He says, provide for yourself what? A treasure in heaven. Something that will never wear out. That lasts for eternity. This is, this is the key thing. God is not calling you to just surrender everything. He's calling you to a better alternative. Come and get something even better than what you have. Your desire for riches and wealth and accumulation is not in itself inherently bad, but you're thinking too small. Think bigger. Jesus has so much more than you can possibly imagine in the grand scheme of eternity. It's, it's a very similar sentiment to what he says in uh, Matthew 19, 21. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. It's kind of like if, in, in my profession, if somebody came in and they were really excited about their investment that was yielding 2%, and you could show them something that was yielding 10%, which one are you going to choose? Or um, maybe I, I use a different example. My wife loves a good deal. Amen? <laughs> um, if she can buy something full price on Amazon, or she could buy the exact same thing unused for half of that on Facebook Marketplace, which one are you going to choose? There's actually a technical term for this, believe it or not. It's called a no-brainer. And that's what Jesus calls you to. This is a no-brainer. Stop thinking too small. Think bigger. There's more to be had. The world might be temporary, but it doesn't mean that you treat this world as nothing. You can take what you have and you can send it forward into eternity. In my job, one of the most important determining factors in what your investment strategy should look like is your time horizon. How much time do we actually have to work with here? For somebody who's going to need their money in a year, it's going to be a very different strategy than the person who's not going to need their money for 30 years. And interestingly enough, pretty much the longest period of time that we work with in the industry is 30 years. That's it. 30 years. Think about how growth-oriented you could be if your time horizon was 100 years or 1,000 or a billion, <laughs> or eternity. It changes everything. And that is what Jesus calls us to. So that when it is gone, this world being temporary changes everything. And aren't you glad for that? Even at its best, this world is rough. We just prayed for what's going on in Maine. And you look across over in Israel, there's another war. You see the atrocities being committed everywhere. And... That's, I mean, that's our world. That's what we live in. Tim Keller, it was kind of funny. I was talking to Janelle this week. And I think our church quotes Tim Keller almost every single Sunday. <laughs> so I am continuing the trend this week. Praise God for Tim Keller's life and ministry. Tim Keller said, during our time on earth, we're like beached whales. We're not dead yet, but we're not having a good time. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'm going to expand on his analogy a little bit. You're flopping around on the beach. You're made to swim in the ocean. There's so much more for you available in God's eternal kingdom where true riches are found. Third observation from the text. This is in verse 10. How we live our lives is a test of sorts. 
and there are rewards on the line. This is the verse that says, be faithful in a little, and you will be entrusted with much. That's a promise from God. I, I, I mean, again, pretty major implications. Be faithful in a little, you will be entrusted with much. This one too, though, God changed my perspective on. For so long, I read this, and I thought, be faithful, and then God will give you a better job, and you'll start making more money, and you'll get a promotion, and you'll get a bigger house, and all of these worldly things. And to a certain extent, I'm, I'm sure that is true, or, or certainly can be true. But in the context of this passage, that's not what he's saying. The little that he's talking about is worldly wealth. Whatever amount you have, that's little. You could have $100 billion, and God says, that's the little that you have. Be faithful in that and you will be entrusted with much. The much he's talking about is true riches available in God's eternal kingdom. Um, so often I see that people look at their wealth and they think, I'll be generous when I get that bonus or when I get the promotion. I'll wait to a certain point before I give back. And you read this passage and that is not what you're called to. You're called to be faithful with what you have. It also makes me think of uh, when Jesus saw the, the widow with the two mites, two pennies. She comes up, she puts the two pennies in the offering box, and that's the person that he's, he like calls the disciples over. He's like, you got to check this out. Look at this. It doesn't make sense to our eyes, but it's because true riches are found elsewhere beyond this life. The band Kane has a song you might have heard on the radio, Honest Offering. Uh, there's a line in that song that I, I love. He says, you turn the pennies in my hand into a heavenly treasure. Your kingdom works by a different measure. You are not even necessarily called to make more money for the kingdom of God. Your intentions might be in the right place. I'm going to you know, do this and start this company and sell it so I can give everything to God. That's great. Praise God for that. But it's not necessarily what you're called to. You're called to be faithful in what you have. And the more that you have on this earth is still a little, Scripture says. But the more that you have on this earth gives you more responsibility and more opportunity to be generous with what you have. You go back to the steward in this parable, and it is interesting because it's a, <laughs> he's a sinful person like us, but he started trying to figure out how can I set myself up for what comes next. And that's the attitude that we're supposed to take from this. Fourth observation, verse 12. Nothing we have is ours, but we will have riches of our own one day. The verse says, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? This one is tough because to a Jewish audience and culture, they would have had, I think, a bit of an easier time wrapping their heads around stewardship and servitude and what you have not being yours. To an American audience, this is a difficult one. <laughs> Because this almost requires a complete rewiring about how you think about what you have. We like ownership. We like freedom. We like to put our stake in the ground and say, this is mine. God blessed me in this way. But Jesus says, this, everything you have is someone else's property. But here's what's cool. When you live by this reality, 
when you can surrender that to him and say, everything I have, truly, is Christ's, life gets a lot easier, believe it or not. It doesn't matter if my account balance is down, it's God's money anyway, right? My grandpa had a situation years ago where he had to get to work and his car broke down. And he, his prayer in that situation was, Lord, your car is broken. How do you intend to fix it? <laughs> We've always quoted that in our family, but there's an element of truth to it. When you start treating the things that you have not as my own, but just as what I'm entrusted with, stewardship, life gets easier. I'm not so worried about it. Instead of checking my account value or how my stocks are doing 15 times a day, well, it's God's anyway. It doesn't matter if it's down. He's sovereign. He'll take care of it. Maybe you're not the type of person that's as obsessed with the actual physical dollars or the numbers that you... <laughs> There's two types of people in this world, those who spend and those who save, and they're destined to get married. <laughs> so if you're the type of person who saves, for you, it's probably looking at the number. What does the number say, right? If you're the type of person who spends, it's maybe, what do I do with this new outfit? How do I honor God with these new shoes or this new car? or whatever it might be. But whatever it is for you, your house, your car, your bike, I, I don't know, it could be anything, whatever it is for you, how am I thinking about that as the Lord's? How am I treating that, that with a heavenly perspective? I'm a steward. And you don't want to be like this guy caught mismanaging what the Lord has entrusted with you. Because... Observation number five, this is verse 15, this comes right from the text. What people value highly is detestable in God's eyes. That's a really strong word. I, I know for me that, that is a sobering message, detestable. That sounds pretty intense. Again, um, the original Greek, it's a, why do we look at the Greek? We believe that scripture, all scripture is inspired by God, it's inspired in the original language. Now that doesn't stop us from a plain reading and meaning of the text, but it is important to look at the original meaning. And the original Greek, the word is, translation, is uh, translated as an abomination. The word itself is bedelguma, really intense sounding word. Utterly repulsive is what it means, abhorrent often used in conjunction with idol, idol worship in the Old Testament or idolatry. And you look at these other nations who worship gods like Baal and Molech, and they would take their children, their newborn children, they would sacrifice them to these gods in the fire. God says it's bedelgamon, it's abhorrent, it's an abomination. And that's the same word he uses to describe what people value highly. The Pharisees are looking at him and saying, come on, really? And he's saying it's, it's detestable. I read that, and it, frankly, I'm, I'm scared because I am a sinner, and I work in finance, and the world screams at me to put my value in this and screams at all of you the same thing. I fail in this constantly. How am I going to get that next position? How am I going to hit that next rung of the bonus scale? What, whatever it might be. God says, your striving for worldly wealth and riches is like this. It's an abomination. Um, I was in the store this past week, and I saw this magazine 
on the rack. Sarah, you can put that up there. How to get rich. Money management made easy. It's got a picture of a couple laying on their yacht. I was uh, interested in this because I, I knew I was going to be preaching. And um, I picked it up. I kind of flipped through it a little bit just to see, you know, what the world has to say about how to get rich. <laughs> Pretty much exactly what you would expect. How to save more, spend less, uh, be a good investor, be smart with your money. What I found interesting was on the very last page, very last page, there was an article on charitable giving. And I just thought that was interesting. First and foremost, you save it to the very end. But secondly, I kind of read the article. It wasn't even about how to give back and how to bless other people. It was about how to get more tax deduction, <laughs> which is true. I mean, that is the way our society is set up. Giving to charity can potentially give you a tax deduction. But I was thinking about this word, this Greek word, bedelgama, and what would this magazine article read if you modeled it after Jesus's life? So I retitled it, How to Become Poor, Give Away Everything You Have and Die. <laughs> you laugh, but that's what Jesus modeled. That's what he modeled. Now, again, don't think too small. Jesus is more for you beyond this life, but if you just look at the way that Jesus lived his life here on this earth, this is what we're called to. God's, I wrote this down, God's economy is diametrically opposed to ours. What people value highly is detestable in God's eyes. And throughout this passage, you see the comparison that Jesus goes back and forth between. You've got physical possessions versus friends, worldly wealth versus true riches, someone else's property versus riches of your own, serving money versus serving God, and what we value versus what God values. We have to realign our thinking is the bottom line. And as I get older, I, I find myself constantly thinking about the difference between profession and belief. Because I think at, at face value, everything we've talked about this morning, I don't think there's any of us who would disagree with it. I certainly hope not. It's from the Bible. So there's very few of us who would disagree with everything that we've talked about this morning. But do we believe it? Belief is where action takes place. Do we actually live this out? Or would you say, hey, great message Sunday morning, and then tomorrow I'm right back to the grind. I'm right back to focusing on how I can advance myself and grow my earthly kingdom. And I'm front of us in my earthly kingdom instead of in God's eternal kingdom. So we, came, we, we already said our, our big idea, true riches are found in God's eternal kingdom. If that's true, what do we do? How do we apply this? Or we, we say around here, what does this mean for Monday? If true riches are found in God's eternal kingdom... How do I actually live that out? I think you need to maintain an eternal mindset when it comes to wealth. How do you do that? How can we continually remind ourselves of this attitude that we should have with money? And this is where we'll get into the application. I've got a number of things for you. First and foremost, take inventory. Take inventory of your possessions, but also your heart and your mind. You do not have to have a lot to be obsessed with a lot. 
talk about that in just a second. So take inventory of your possessions. What does what you have say about your heart and your mind? We already said it, money is a magnifying glass, right? What does the magnifying glass reveal about you? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, but I'm not rich. I don't have a lot, okay? Then for you, take inventory of your heart and your mind, like I just said. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. John D. Rockefeller said, somebody asked him, how much money is enough? He said, just a little more. Anybody know who uh, Nelson Bunker Hunt is? You ever heard of this person? He's a very successful investor in, back in the 70s, multi-billionaire. I think at one point he was the, the richest man in the world. We've got a picture of him up there. Um, him and his brother, they tried to corner the silver, they kind of did. They cornered the silver market, bought up almost all of the silver in the entire world. And the federal government found out what they were doing and uh, changed the rules, said, you, you can't do this, this is market manipulation. Changed the rules, he had accumulated multiple billions of dollars over a period of years, overnight, more or less lost everything, relatively speaking. And the, the Senate put together a committee to figure out how did this happen, how can we prevent it from happening again? And there was a senator that asked him, you know, why did you do this? I, I think the actual question was, how is it possible to lose a billion dollars? And Mr. Hunt said, Senator, a billion dollars isn't what it used to be. This was after he lost everything. You don't have to have a lot to be obsessed with a lot. So take inventory. Be careful. And be honest, too. A true emotional intimacy is almost impossible if you won't admit something. If you take inventory and it becomes pretty obvious that I am trying to set myself up, my earthly kingdom here, I am mismanaging what God has entrusted you with, I'm not being a good steward, be honest. Come clean about that. And, and what you have to do next is you have to confess. Malachi says, holding back from what the Lord has given you isn't just dishonest, it's theft. You are stealing from God. If you confess something, you have to repent. That's what confession, repentance is. We're going this way. That's a hard stop, 180 degrees. We start going back the other way. That's what repentance means. So you got to repent. You have to pray for an eternal focus. One of my favorite parables in the Bible is that of the person who found treasure in a field. They went and they sold everything that they had to purchase that field. And right after it, you've got the parable of the um, merchant who found a, a pearl of great price. And he went and sold everything else that he had so he could get that pearl. And the world looks at that and we say, come on, really? A field? One pearl? And that's what it means to find true riches in God's eternal kingdom. The other thing, you have to fight, and it is a fight, because this culture, the world we live in, screams at you to put your worth and your value in what you have and what you can make and what you can do. It is a constant fight against that. I can think of so many movie references. I, I included two. Michael Douglas in the movie Wall Street, he plays Gordon Gecko. That famous line, greed is good. Or um, Ted Danson in the movie Dad, uh, his son, I think it's played by Ethan Hawke, and there's this scene where Ethan Hawke asks him, you know, why did you work so hard and destroy our family life? And it was such a mess. And Ted Danson says, 
Making money made me feel like a man. Maybe more relevant is the myriad of financial advice that you see on TikTok or on YouTube nowadays. Everything that is out there is going to push you to put your worth and your value in what you have. And you have to fight against that. But you can't just fight. If you're just going to fight and kind of bear through it and I'm just not going to look at any of this other stuff, that is either you're, it's unsustainable. You're either not going to be able to do it forever or you're just going to be frustrated and bitter, which is also failure. So you have to replace it with something. You can't just fight. You have to replace. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek heavenly riches first. Be frontmost in how you seek heavenly riches, and all these other things will be given to you as well. So what do you replace it with? Well, you look back at Luke 12. Give to the poor. Right? Or Malachi 3.10 uh, where he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see that I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you will not be able to store it all. That, that's one of the only times in the Bible where God says you can test me. So I have a little uh, exercise for you. Do it. Test him. Give some money. See what happens. We just talked about generosity feeds. That's a great opportunity. We got to fill that gap. Give some money. See what happens. I'm not the one telling you to test God. God said that. So you can take it to him and you can actually see if he is true to his word. And I know what will happen. He is true to his word. So you'll be blessed. Ron Blue, uh, he has an um, investment advisory company. I think it's called Ronald Blue Trust. He has a great quote. It says, giving breaks the power of money. And that is so true. It's like the tighter we hold on, the more miserable we come. Have you ever noticed that? And as soon as you let go, all of a sudden, money doesn't have its power anymore. I'm not obsessed with it anymore. Second point of application, use worldly wealth to make friends. Again, this one comes straight from the text. That's what Jesus said. If I'm being honest, I, I read a lot of what's in Scripture, and I read about give to the poor and you know, again, if I'm just being totally honest, it, it's not always something that I'm just ready to crack open my wallet and great, who would I sign the check to? A lot of times abstraction, I don't know about for you, but for me, it doesn't always lead to action. But I love the way that Jesus puts it here. Use worldly wealth to make friends. What a picture that is of heaven. Because true value is in relationships. Jesus cares about souls. That's where the ultimate value lies. Ask God, how would you have me use my house or my money or my car or my land or whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that the Lord has entrusted you with, whether it's a beach house or whether it's something else, how would you have me use my wealth to make friends? to advance the gospel. It's not yours anyway. It's just your job as the manager to find ways to do this. You never hear somebody say, my friends got stuck in the hurricane, but thank goodness my house is okay. Doesn't make any sense, right? We would look down on somebody who had a, a, a worldview like that. Interesting asterisk on this. 
something, this is my personal observation, there's two points in the human life cycle where we inherently recognize this. Birth and death. Ever think about that? I have a couple of kids. For those of you who have children, when your child comes into the world for the first time, you are not thinking about how much money you have, unless it's about how you're going to pay for college. (laughs) That doesn't matter. You're not thinking about that. And it's the same thing on the back end, too, when we experience someone passing on to the next life. I was working with a lady, this was just this past month, and her husband died tragically from um, bladder cancer. And um, he went through four rounds of chemo, and they had surgery to take out the tumor, and uh, he was in Johns Hopkins, and um, they, they did the procedure. He was actually doing really well. He was in the, the hospital room recovering, doing great. And she went down to the coffee shop to, to get a cup of coffee. And uh, she said she came back. She ripped the curtain back and said, did you miss me? And he was, he was gone. He was laying on the bed. He was gone. She was sitting in my office, tears streaming down her face. She had a tissue over her face, just sobbing. We had her financials up on the computer screen. And she... She waved the computer like this. She says, none of this matters. This is a family that has more money than they know what to do with. She would give all of it back if she could have him back. Jesus cares about souls. True value is in relationships. Use worldly wealth to make friends. Going back to Tim Keller's analogy We're not just called to not be on the beach. You're called to be in the ocean. You're called to be in the ocean in a pod of whales. We are meant to live in community. I just really wanted to use the phrase a pod of whales. (laughs) You're meant to swim in the ocean with friends. We're meant to live in community, and that's the picture of what heaven is like. That's the picture that Jesus gives us. Make friends. I can't think of anything better than one day being in heaven, walking those streets of gold, in the unending eternal presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and having somebody else come up to you and saying, because of you, because of the money that you gave, or because of of when you gave me a ride in your car, or when you had me over to your house that one time, because of that, I'm here today. Can you think of anything better than that? That's what we're called to. That's the true riches in God's eternal kingdom that Jesus provides us. That's the better alternative. Last point of application here, look to Jesus' example on the cross. Praise God, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did is evident in every sermon that you hear at Fairfax Bible Church. I hope that it's evident in every sermon that you hear. Our small group just finished going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and our theme in studying it was the gospel changes everything, and it does. So you look at this steward, Look at your situation. How are you being a good steward, hopefully? And then look to Jesus' example in the gospel. How did Jesus model this in his life? He gave it all. He gave everything. He died for you, his life. And again, you think about this from a worldly perspective, it doesn't really make sense to us. He died poor, a carpenter's son, Little to no assets to speak of, 
no beneficiaries on file, no heirs, no living trust, no will, no estate plan to speak of. But in a sense, it's the ultimate estate plan. Because of what he did, we can spend eternity with him. Follow his example in how you handle your own possessions. I tell people there are, the, the perfect investment will do three things. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Perfect investment will do three things. It will grow, it will never lose any value, and you can always access it. It's liquid. And um, that does not exist. There's no such thing as the perfect investment. But you can, you can invest in different things that will do each one of those items individually. I don't know if it's just a sign of the times or what it is, but increasingly I find people asking about that second one. How do I invest in what will never lose value? How do I invest in something that's going to be secure? You know what the safest, generally speaking, what is considered the safest investment in our world? You can Google this. You can fact check me. It's treasury bonds. The U.S. federal government. And I'm not saying anything about America as a country. I'm not saying anything about our government. I'm just saying the safest thing that you can invest in is a man-made institution. Wow, really secure. But I have good news. There is something that is safe and secure and holds unlimited guarantees. So the message this morning is stop thinking too small. True riches are found in God's eternal kingdom. Think bigger. Stop trying to satisfy yourself in the ceaseless letdown of day trading stocks or in the thrill of cryptocurrency or in getting that car or that house or a bigger piece of land or another child or stop trying to satisfy yourself in that look instead to god's eternal kingdom do like this steward did start setting yourself up for what comes next look instead to the the large cap diversified inflation protected christ insured limitless guarantees available in the kingdom of heaven where true riches are found let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be like this steward, not in his dishonesty, but in how he handled eternity, how he tried to set himself up for what came next. I pray that that would be our heart attitude and our mind, that we would set ourselves up for true riches in your eternal kingdom. We love you, Lord. We want this attitude. We believe this truth. We profess this truth. Help our unbelief. Help us to live this out. Help us to take this to heart, these truths to heart, and to find our satisfaction in you and you alone. We praise these things in your name. Amen.